Lynn, I think it's good if you kind of give your background on, you know, how you got into this industry. Okie dokie. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you want me to go ahead and start now? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so the, the, the long, the shortish version of a long story, I, I kind of grew up uh, typical, you know, middle-class suburban lifestyle, both parents were musicians. So I, I wasn't, like I did sports, like in the 70s and 80s as a boy, you just did sports. And I did Little League Baseball, soccer, I did football for a season, believe it or not, even though I really wasn't cut out for it. But I just played video games and ate your typical sort of, you know, uh, not great diet. Got to high school and we had, uh, my high school had mandatory athletics as part of the overall thing. So I got into sports and one summer I got into cycling and it just kind of like, you know, there's that trite saying about, you know, your passion chooses you, but it was, it was just like, I like the changes that I was seeing physically and, and I just got really, really interested in it. So I, I got into weight training. I was cycling. I was on the swim team, did triathlons that year. And I just sort of got really obsessive about that. Uh, got into gymnastics my senior year. That led me to UCLA where I got my degree to study exercise physiology and originally I wanted to be a coach and then I wanted to be a physical therapist because I got injured and then I got back into competitive sports in rollerblading inline skating which this would have been the early 90s when that was really taking off and I just I was an, I was one of those decent athletes that wanted to be better yeah. so I read all the magazines I read all the ads and I started talking bothering my physiology professors and they told me that it was all crap um and that I should, you know, so basically that led me to the research library. Figured, well, if, if they're misrepresenting the claims and I want to learn more about, you know, the science of, of training and nutrition and performance, I will just do it myself. And that kind of kicked. So I got out of college in 93 and there was this new thing developing called the internet. <laughs> and really like I'm 50 years old now, like I was there, I watched it start. Nobody knew what it was. People thought it was a fad. Like it was a very new, my, my first browser didn't even have graphics. That's how bad it was. I had Mozilla one. And, but this is the early days. I got into early Usenet groups, one called Misc Fitness Weights, or just, it, it was the first time it really brought people from around the world with shared interests. Yeah. And late push to the mid to late nineties. And people knew that they had to have websites, but they didn't know why. That was the business model. We need a website. We don't know how to make any money, but we need a website. Yeah. And people liked what I had to say and wanted to start pay me to start writing. And I was working just as a personal trainer at the time. So I started writing articles for websites and people seemed to like it. And that was about the time that that sort of uh, cyclical ketogenic diets came back into vogue. You had Mara DePasquale's anabolic diet, Dan Duchesne's body opus. And I got very involved in that. And that would lead me to write my first book, The Ketogenic Diet, which I believe I published in 1998. Yeah. And it just kind of went from there, right? People seem to like my books, like what I had to say. I've always what, been obsessive. Uh, Go ahead. What pushed you to write the book though? Like, did you feel like the, uh, the books out there at the time weren't good enough or? Um, it wasn't so much that. So originally I had a co-author and what we were both seeing was that there were sort of two different attitudes towards those diets, which was either that they were the greatest thing ever, or they would just heart attack, heart disease on a plate, right? That was at these extremes. So we originally set out to write what we wanted to make a research-based, evidence-based, objective look at the topic. And 
I would end up having to, to take over the book project on my own, unfortunately. But that was the goal, right? And anybody who's read it will see that nowhere do I say, do it or don't do it. All I said was, if you've decided, here's what you need to know. Here are the pros, here are the cons, here's how to set it up optimally. It was more just, there wasn't what we felt was uh, just like, so everybody was coming into it with just these emotional uh, attachments to it. Mainstream right. dietitians thought it was terrible. So it was mainly that. And so I wrote that thing and it was a monster project. Like it should not have been my first book and it nearly broke me. I nearly had a nervous breakdown at the end of it trying to finish the thing as a nightmare. But that, that just kind of kicked it off, right? At this point, the internet was really in full swing uh, or getting there by the late nineties. Um, websites were popping up. They wanted to pay me to write. People liked my books. So I just kind of slipped more into writing yeah. And since that time, I've written, hi, buddy. Thank you. Um, I don't know, 14, 15 books. I've even lost count at this point um, on just all, you know, my, my, I'd say my primary topics have always been, you know, fat loss, mainly because I was kind of a, a an over fat little kid. And, yeah. you know, we all kind of want to help fix ourselves, basically. Mm -hmm. it's, it's that. And, but just performance as well. I wanted to be a better athlete. So the training aspect, even though I was never more than mediocre at it, I always loved lifting since I was 15. So I've always been very fast. Just all aspects of training, performance, nutrition just fascinate me. And mostly, like I said, it was, I wanted to be a better athlete and I turned it into a career. Yeah. And that would sort of fuel me for, for a while through, you know, 2010. And I went through burnout. There were some times when I, I honestly sort of retired just, and, and when I retired from competitive sports myself in 2012, I, I kind of walked away from it for a few years. And that was when my own bipolar was really kicking in. And I said, you want to talk about that towards the end and some bad stuff happened. And I got back into the field and that would lead me eventually to write, you know, my most recent big book, which is the women's book, which I published in, what is it? 2017, I want to say. Yeah. Two, three years. I think going on three years now. Um, so yeah. So basically just kind of fell into it. It was my absolute obsession for and has been for God going on 25 to 30 years now. Um, and it's just like, it's what I do and it's what I seem to be semi good at. Um, <laughs> you know, cer certainly the online space has changed. Yeah. You know, I, I did, I did a podcast a few weeks ago and someone was like, you know, back in the day, anytime I looked for fat loss, all they came across was my articles. And he wanted to know how, how did I do my brilliant search engine optimization? How did I do my brilliant keyword stuff? And I said, no, it wasn't that. I was the only one around. Like literally I was the only one that was doing that writing. Yeah. And, and to a great degree, I was probably one of the ones who created this current, you know, evidence-based online thing. Yeah. Because I would say in 95, it was still all, you know, bodybuilding magazine, a quote unquote bro science. And I was out of college. So I, I, I knew I knew everything, right? <laughs> ha, ha, ha. <laughs> like every new college student, college graduate. And um, dog, stop. And uh, on that note on that with college and your, your first book yeah. with keto diet, mm -hmm. uh, why don't we get into that? So why... Hmm talk of why did you go into keto diet first and there's a lot of evidence now that there's no difference in fat loss with calories in if it's keto or high carb sure so uh, basically so so dan duchene wrote a book called body opus and the, he was he was one of the early really nutritional really was a drug guru in the late 70s and in the 80s very polarizing very infamous 
and he wrote this book. And basically I was living back in my hometown, very bored, very unhappy. And this book came out and I was like, okay, this sounds awesome. So I just kind of tried it. And, and excuse me, especially at the time, I'm one of those people who certainly then, if I ate some carbohydrates, I wanted to eat more. And I found it very difficult to control my calories when I was trying to fat loss diet. I would just end up kind of, oh. so, so that approach fit me as much physiologically as it did psychologically. Like I can do zero carbs. I can do all the carbs. Moderate for me at that point, more so than now was very, so it's like his arguments were very convincing. I didn't know any better, right? Like at that point, the data was still fairly novel. There certainly wasn't as much of it. And I like the arguments. It looked like fun. So I did it for some amount, ridiculous amount of time. It's actually one of the first things I wrote. There's something somewhere out there called the Body Opus Diaries. And it's just like my weekly, because everyone was like, what's this diet? How does it work? What does it do? It was such a new thing to people. So I wrote that. And I think that's kind of what led to that. Uh, my original co-author, uh, he had done, he was more in the anabolic diet, Mara Di Pasquale's version, which similar, but it's not worth getting into the details. So originally he was going to do the exercise, he was going to do nutrition bit because he had a nutrition degree. I was going to do the exercise bit because I had the exercise physiology degree. When we ended up going our separate ways, unfortunately, I had to basically learn nutritional biochemistry because it wasn't really my, and, and it's why it's interesting. I'm really known more for nutrition now. Yeah. But my original passion was actually train was actually physiology more so. And I just haven't written much about training, uh, certainly not in book form. So it was, it was really more just that it, it seemed like something to do. It was boring that summer and I got very into it and started looking into the research. And that just kind of like very much led me to, you know, whatever it is I have become today, like whatever you want to define my career as, or, or what I do for a living, which is frequently difficult to explain, like, you know, what a nutritional theorist I've heard people throw around, like, you know, what, uh, but no, yeah, so, you know, so now, sorry, go ahead. Y'all known as the guy who doesn't take any bullshit in the nutrition industry. For people well, there's that, know. there's that too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, in, and in that sense, I think that was very much Duchesne. Said he was very infamous. He didn't care who he offended. He believed in just what it, what did he feel was the truth. And I mean, he went to jail three times for steroids. He was very he was one of the few people in the '80s to go look. Drugs are safe. This is how athletes are using them. This is how I help athletes use them. And he didn't give a damn what anybody thought. And he paid the price for it. Hmm. He passed away in the early '90s or in the late '90s rather. Um, nothing related to steroids. It was a congenital kidney thing. And, and like, so I think in some, to some degree, like I'd sort of, like I couldn't fill his shoes, but I tried to kind of take up his mantle a little bit. Um, but yeah, I just, I believe in what the science says and I've lost friends and I've lost business opportunities. And at the end of the day, I don't care. Um, as I like to say, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to be right. And I will always take the truth over, you know, any of that. And I, that's certainly my reputation among other things. So, so yeah, you know, like, so now, you know, with the research now, yeah, I don't think keto diets or even cyclical ketogenic diets have advantages in that sense, right? The fat loss is basically the same, but as we're rapidly learning, and I was saying this over a decade ago, right? The best diet is the one that you can adhere to. Yeah. And for many people, Removing all carbs, at least initially, makes adherence better. Like I said, if you're one of those people that eats some bread and wants to eat the rest of the loaf, then you might have to cut them all out temporarily. You know, there, there are other 
excuse me, potential benefits, insulin resistance. For me, it's very much a context thing. Yeah. And this is something I find that zealots of all types don't realize, right? If you're an intermittent fasting guy, you're an intermittent fasting guy. If you're a keto guy, you're a keto guy. If you're a high carb guy, you're a high carb guy. And it's like, well, what is appropriate for the given situation? Would I give a keto diet to a high performance athlete doing high intensity activity? Probably not. Would I give it to an inactive, sedentary, overweight individual with insulin resistance? I would certainly moderate their carbs, whether I would go full-blown keto, depends, you know, I've always, which is funny because on the one hand, well, not funny, but I would sell more books if I was a zealot. Yeah. Yeah. Because people don't want to hear, it depends. They want to hear, I've got the answer. And that's why that stuff sells to people. Convincing arguments are always going to be a lot better, but I just kind of can't work that way. Because uh, it just, it's just, it depends on the person. Like I said their body fat percentage, there's a genetic component, there's a psychological component, there's the training component. All of that goes into what might be or might not be optimal for any given person. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think a lot of people as well get into this thing about so they fight about low carb, high fat, whatever. But another thing that comes up in the group is starvation mode. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of explain, you know. Yeah. Is there such a thing as starvation mode and what happens to the body when you go into a severe deficit versus a minimal deficit? Um, So I think some of it depends on how we're defining the terms because it tends to get thrown around a couple different ways. So the general premise is that when you diet, the body senses that, right? It senses that you're in a deficit, that you're losing fat, and it basically tries to prevent that, right? Dieting in a very real sense is just starvation on a longer time frame right? It's just a slower version of starvation. And so the idea can be, can mean one of two things. One, it's that your body will increase its desire or ability to store fat when calories are, are put back into the diet. And that is absolutely true, right? There's a whole host of adaptations that occur with fat loss and dieting that sort of prime the body to regain body fat when calories are made available again, um, including you know, there is a decrease in all components of metabolic rate, some of which is due to being smaller, but some of which has to do with hormonal changes and what's called an adaptive component, which I'm mean, just not, it just, except that it happens. You get increases in hunger. Uh, fat cells do become more efficient at restoring fat when calories are available. Like th- there's no debate that that happens. Yeah. Where starvation mode often gets thrown in is that, ah, you can get to a point where regardless of the deficit, you are not, it becomes becomes impossible to lose fat. I think that's probably the more common usage of it. And others refer to that as, you know, metabolic damage or or whatever it is. And again, there's both truth and non-truth to that. And and so 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 sort of to try to make this clear, all right, let's say you're starting a fat loss diet and your current maintenance calorie level is 1800 calories a day right? Like that's what would keep you stable where you're at. You go on a fat loss diet, right? You reduce your calories or increase your activity, whatever. Let's say it's to 1300 calories a day, right? So you're in a 500 calorie per day deficit. You will be losing some amount of fat over some time period now, right? So, so here's your initial maintenance. Here's your current calorie, right? Here's, here's your calorie levels, right? So that's the deficit. Now, what we wish would happen is that these would stay the same, right? And fat loss would just keep going. You lose a pound the first week, second week, third week, fourth week, 
forever. We all know that that is not how it works. Because <laughs> yeah. what happens over time is your old maintenance level starts to decrease. And again, some of it is because you're smaller, smaller body burns less calories, smaller both at rest and during activity. There are often decreases in spontaneous activity, right? That moving around that we do, non-exercise non activity thermogenesis, right? That can go down because you're tired. Mm -hmm. And the body is essentially trying to make you move less or eat more so you don't starve to death. But over time, that initial 1800 calorie maintenance versus the 1300 calorie intake, that 1800 goes down. So the initial 500 calorie deficit, 400, 300, 200, and then you hit a plateau, right? That's why all these silly ideas, you'll people go, oh, if you just eat one apple less a day, you'll lose some ridiculous amount of weight over a year. <laughs> but what they're assuming is that there's no adaptation. Yeah. Right, they're assuming low. It'll be 80 calories a day for 365 days is 24,000 calories, which is uh, something like eight pounds, about four kilos, somewhere in that range. But it doesn't. It never works that way because eventually the body comes into balance. Now, is that technically starvation mode? No, not really. What it is is metabolic adaptation, right? Yeah. So now you're now you're still stable. You won't magically start regaining fat at this level you will simply be imbalanced again. Now, if you start overeating, you will. And under certain conditions, you can regain fat faster than you did before, depending. But to generate more fat loss, you have to create, now create a new deficit. You yeah. increase your calories by a couple hundred, you decrease your food, into, sorry, increase your exercise burn a couple hundred calories. So you have to keep adjusting it or you hit a plateau. Now, is that really starvation mode? Yet again, yes and no, like it is the body adapting. You will stop losing fat. The idea that you can start restoring or regaining body fat while maintaining a deficit, that does not happen. It has never happened, but the body, go ahead. It's impossible to not lose weight if, you, if you're actually in a deficit. Correct. It's just at some point, the deficit either becomes essentially nil or it's so small as to be irrelevant. Like you're losing, you, you get to the point that, you know, so that initial 500 calorie a day deficit that should be about a pound per fat per week is now only a hundred calories. You're now losing one fifth of a pound per week. Yeah. For all practical purposes, you're not losing anything. I mean, that, that's less than a pound a month. Like yeah. at that point, you're just kind of like spinning your wheels. But again, you're never going to start regaining, right? Now, a few years ago, there were many claims about, ah, metabolic damage and people regaining fat in low calories. And what it came down to is that people were, and generally do, just they're mistaken about how much they're actually eating. They're underreporting their calorie intake. This has never been seen in research ever, where people will start magically regaining body fat on a controlled deficit. What happens is you get hungry, you move less, your body tries to put you back in a surplus because it wants to take you back to where you were. A lot, um, a lot of people say, so there's a lady in the group, she was saying that before she was eating 800 calories a day, she, mm -hmm. she put on eight pounds um, and she was training more than ever. You know, obviously she's not putting on fat there. That's water retention. Can you explain right. why that happens and why it's so extreme? Or is, is that actually extreme in the context of the body being two thirds water? 
Um, it depends, like some of it will depend on body size. The, the, the water retention thing, it's something I've talked about for a lot of years and it is known to occur, you know, during starvation. I usually put it in terms of a hormone called cortisol, stress hormone. It may or may not be involved, but the fact is that it does occur. And there's also another issue that women have to consider that I think may sort of trans seg into the, the next topic, but mm -hmm. I'll, I'll come back to that. But what happens basically is when the body is put under incredible amounts of stress, and usually the combination that's a killer is very low calories and very large amounts of activity or large amounts of high intensity activity, water can be retained. Now, this varies, and some of it will depend on body size, and I don't know if I've ever seen really, um, you know, I, I don't think I can put solid numbers to it in terms of how much water people can retain. There does seem to be variance in this. Um, and what it ends up doing is it sort of masks fat loss, right? Because something that I think I, I bet a lot of uh, people or women listening to this can, can relate to, right? You've been dieting hard, you've been exercising like a maniac, and nothing's happening, right? The numbers all add up. And, and, and I'm not going to just say that everyone is cheating. I'm not saying you're cheating on your diet. Let's just assume your calories are where you think they are. And that's frequently not the case, but that's a separate issue. And nothing's happening. And you're just like, what the hell? I'm working so hard for nothing. Yeah. And then you're just like, because I've, I've had clients do this and you just go, you know what? Screw this. Take a couple days, skip the gym, you eat, and you wake up five pounds lighter. You wake up two, two plus kilos lighter that Monday. Now what the hell is going on? <laughs> and what you see is that basically that by raising calories that way, by raising carbs, it sort of releases whatever's going on hormonally. Uh, to, to prevent that water retention and kind of something in that vein. And I talked about this in my women's book and I've talked about this with some coaches, right? Is I've since 2004 advocated for having, you know, higher calorie days are called refeed days or days at maintenance within a diet. I'm not the first one to come up with that. Carb cycling is decades old. Trust me, I'm not claiming I invented this. I kind of formalized it, but I, it's not my invention by any means. But what they've noticed is that when dieters, and I think more so women than men have those maintenance days where they raise calories up to their water retention is really, really, really reduced. Um, there's something that seems to have, and again, it's always with the extreme approaches and there's a psychology that goes along with this that tends to be like the harder, the better yeah. and make no mistake. This is what a lot of mainstream diet media tells us. The harder you diet, the faster you lose. Right? I don't want people listening to this to be like, ah, I'm just saying you're stupid or you're, you're dumb for what, this is what we're told to do, generally speaking, right? There's just a lot of bad information out there and that's where the problem lies. But there's a certain personality type that's drawn to that, that tends to be tightly wound, let's put it that way. <laughs> like you can see it, you can see it when they type online, a lot of all caps, a lot of explanation, exclamation points. Why am I not losing weight now? Like, and that can raise cortisol level. Like there's certain stress profile. And when they finally just chill out a little bit, frequently weight drop. So when folks deliberately include those higher calorie days, that seems to prevent a lot of this, a lot of this. Now, women had another issue and that's the menstrual cycle. Yeah. Which makes it that much harder for women compared to men to even track if their diet is working. Right, so under- so, so what you say, so if you are in a deficit, and mm -hmm. you, what, you tell, what you'd say is, look, you are going to be losing fat, but just you're going to, in your mind, 
you're going to think right. your numbers are all over the place. Just stick to it. Correct. And, and my general experience is with that kind of severe water retention, it never lasts more than about three or four weeks, right? It, almost without it, eventually the body, something gives, whether it's the diet or giving up on their diet for a couple of days or the body finally just kind of lets it go. But if it's, if it's going past that, like if there's still really no visible results, there are other things to look at. And unfortunately, the big one is just misestimating calorie intake. It's very easy to do. And, and again, everybody does it, and I don't want anybody, I'm not saying anybody is lying about it. That's what they, they often said that back in the 70s. And they, I'm sure there are some people that deliberately misrepresent it, but everyone is bad at this. Whether you're lean, overweight, active, inactive, registered dietitians can't accurately estimate their calories. We're all bad at this, unless you've spent a lot of time measuring and weighing and tracking. I've known serious athletes, serious physique competitors, right? People that know all of this to the gram and they stall and they go and they add it all up and they're eating 50 to hundred percent more than they thought they were. Yeah. Everybody is bad at this. And frequently that's the first place to look, right? Because we tend to eyeball portions. Yeah. You can get away with it on some things, but you know, the classic example, <clears throat> you know, is, the, the tablespoon or half tablespoon of peanut butter. This is measurement in, in the US. This is, I don't know what the, the non-US equivalent of that is, right? And, and what people will do is they'll take a big old full spoonful and be like, oh, that no, that's about double what you think you're getting. And when you, or, and then the hardcore dieters, cause they're so hungry, they'll just be like, they'll get that and they'll lick the edges and maybe, and like, but we tend not to count that. We don't count, the, we don't count the cream. We don't count the condiments on our sandwich, stuff that we forget. And it adds up significantly. So that person who thinks they're eating 800, maybe eating 1200 or 1600. So that's always the first place to look. Assuming that that plateau is last or that, that weird weight gain has lasted more than, you know, has lasted a month. I would certainly look at that first. Um, but I wanted to sort of bring this back to, again, women in the menstrual cycle and how they, how they have to track. Because men can track week to week. Yeah. Right. Men are basically, we're just the same every day of our lives <laughs> from the time we hit puberty till the time we die. Right. We're just the same. Yeah. Women, after they hit puberty, assuming there's not, not some other have to deal with their month, the menstrual cycle, right? That is the monthly cycle that is divided into four week, two, two major phases and then four individual weeks. And within each week, water, water weight and water retention can vary, right? Usually body weight is lowest in the first week of the cycle, right after menstruation starts. Usually goes up a little bit in the second week, right before ovulation. And this is especially true if you're eating a lot of sodium. Typically goes back down in week three, and then that fourth week, which is when premenstrual syndrome or premenstrual tension, if you're going to experience it occurs, body weight can spike significantly. And any woman listening to this has experienced this. They know it happens, but what the difficulty is that depending on how much it's changing, that can completely overwhelm. Um, a can overwhelm the weekly fat loss, right? If you're losing a pound, pound and a half, you know, about half of a kilo of fat per week and your body weight is up a kilo and a half in the second week of your cycle, looks like your diet's not working. Yeah. But then yeah. it'll look like it is for a week. And mm -hmm. then in the fourth week, that PMS premenstrual to PMT week, it may go up two to two and a half kilos. 
suddenly you look like, oh my God, well, I'm doing everything right and I'm two kilos heavier? And then almost- Screw this, screw this, right? This is stupid. Um, But what that means functionally, and I don't know the woman you're talking about who, who said she was eight pounds up, women can only compare their body weight in the same week of the cycle, right? So if you say you started a diet in week one, right? Right after menstruation, and you happen to weigh right during that PMS, right before you started, right before the beginning of the next month, your weight may very well be up by multiple pounds. Also, when women start an exercise program or people, frequently they'll store more carbohydrate and muscle that pull, like there are other things going on. But if you compared those two time points, it would absolutely look like nothing was working. Whereas if you waited till you started menstruation and compared yeah. week one to week one, that's really the only legitimate way for you to tr- to, to be able for women to track who are menstruating. Same thing. You can compare week two to week two, week three to week three. Honestly, uh, for women who are, or for any, for women who are really kind of live and die by scale weight, I would say stay off the scale in week four. Nothing <laughs> good, nothing good can come of it. Right. <laughs> Cause even again, I've known these hardcore athletes and, and they, they know it's water weight. They yeah. know it yeah. still drives them nuts, right? Yeah. It's just, and, and look, I'm a guy, I get it too. You're dieting hard and you get on the scale. Like, what do you mean I'm up two pounds? I know better, but it's still very psychologically demoralizing, right? So like the best time for, I would say for most women to really track would maybe be two or three days after the first day of menstruation, right? That That's day one of the cycle. So maybe two or three days later, that's probably gonna give you the most, accurate measurement of your weight and also the most consistent way to track month to month to month. I mean, realize even day-to-day weight can go up and down and up and down, but by and large, or same day on week two, same day in week three, just don't mess with it in week four. Um, pro- so that so even that, you know, like I said, even over two weeks, you start your diet, two weeks later, you should be lighter. You turn the part of the cycle where your weight's up by a kilo and a half. Shit, yeah. it looks like the diet's not working. Yeah. We got some questions coming in on this part because it's yeah, of course. Um, oh yes, yes. Um, polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, someone's mentioned yeah. that, that it's not a normal for it's not a cycle that a full yes cycle. So what would you say to those yes? PCOS makes all of this way more complicated. Um, in PCOS, one of two things that, or or typically you you can see oligomenorrhea, which is a cycle that anywhere between 35 to 90 days, one cycle that very, it's an infrequent menstrual cycle, or there may be no menstrual cycle, full-blown amenorrhea. And in that case, I don't honestly have any really good advice because when you look at the hormonal profile, like women with a, I hate to use the word normal because I do not want people to hear that PCOS is abnormal. It's called a standard menstrual cycle, the standard four-week cycle. There's a very characteristic change in the hormones. With PCOS, some individual days look like the standard menstrual cycle and others look like radiostatic. So there really is not going to be any particularly good way to do this. And I wish I had a better answer, but you simply, I just don't know. I don't really, you know, other than I would say that any plateau that's lasted longer than four weeks, something else is going on that's, that's worth looking at. Um, 
even, even the most moderate of diets, I would expect a measurable change to occur within a four week time span, even with, even with water retention, everything else going on. So I wish I had a better answer for you, but I don't right now. That's fine. And you mentioned earlier about going to maintenance and the benefits of it with water hmm. retention. Is it a good yes. idea then to go to maintenance at that week where you are going to be heaviest? Would that offset a bit or no? Um, well, so there's, there's two ways to, to, to approach those maintenance, the, the maintenance days. One is just to do it within your diet weeks, right? So pick one or two days a week where you're just going to eat, you know, maintenance calories or normally, assuming normally is not going, going nuts. Um, I also find, I think psychologically having those maintenance days, right? It's pretty overwhelming to go, God, I got to diet every day hard for the next six weeks. That's psychologically overwhelming going, I only have to diet for four days, then I have a maintenance day. People probably do it by mistake because they, some days they give in to the diet a bit, right. they eat a bit. So they're actually doing this, most right. people are probably doing this anyway. Correct. But I think even there, there's a difference and it's psychological, psychological. because what happens when people break their diet and I don't like putting it in those for various reasons, right? And they're just like, oh, I'm weak. I don't have any willpower. I'm guilty. I should just go ahead and eat as much as I can. When they plan it as part of the diet, they are in control of the diet rather than the diet being in control of them. I do think it changes the psychology. And it also lets you plan, right? Let's face it. It's easy for, you know, I, whatever, I'm a single male. When I was an athlete, it was all about me. If I didn't socialize, I didn't have to go out. If you have family, if you have a significant other, it's nice to be able to go out and maybe do something social once a week. Yeah. And you can plan those maintenance days during the during any given week when you want them. You want to do it on a Saturday so you can go and have dinner with your family and eat like a normal person. Yeah. Plan it for that day. For athletes especially, it's important because it lets you refill muscle carbohydrate stores to support high intensity activity. Um, women more so than men because they, they're smaller and tend to have lower uh, maintenance levels. Women often run into a big problem. How do you eat? How do you create a deficit sufficient to generate fat loss, but eat enough carbs to sustain your, your activity? And usually you got to pick one or the other. Yeah. Men, since they're bigger, can usually have a little more calories to play with. So by doing it this way, you can get the best of both worlds. You can have your lower calorie days. And then every third or fourth day, you have a maintenance calorie day. And then a couple more diet days. You can plan those either to fit your training schedule or you can to fit your life. So yeah. that you can go like, so, so that would be one way to do it. Now, there's also something I've talked about called the full diet break. And it's funny, it only took, uh, I'm seeing more research looking at this going, oh yeah, it has metabolic advantages. Well, yeah, okay. Um, somebody said that in 2004, but that's okay. Um, the idea of a full diet break is that you deliberately, and again, by your own choice, right? This isn't a, I fell off my diet and decided to screw it for a week. This is, I am choosing to eat normally at maintenance for anywhere from seven to 14 days. This has a number of benefits. One, it allows you to restore any performance you may have lost. Two, it tends to offset some of the metabolic adaptation we talked about. Uh, three, it also gives you practice at eating at maintenance. And this is a whole separate topic. I could do it. I could do hours on any of this. That losing fat has never been the problem. We've known how to do that for five or six decades. What we're bad at is getting people to keep it off. Yeah, that's always been the difficulty. At some point, you're gonna have to learn how to eat at your new maintenance. 
after you've lost the fat, when your hunger may be increased, your activity, when your energy expenditure is a little bit down. This gives you a chance to practice it. Yeah. Under, under a very controlled situation. So you can find, and, and there's a whole nother thing, another topic I need to write something about, which is eating and dieting as a learning experience, right? You found strategies that work for you long-term. I found strategies that work for me and they may not be the same. Yeah. But it's within our individual psychology, lifestyle, personality. These maintenance weeks, this full diet break gives you a chance to find out where are the problems? What are you having issues with controlling your food intake when you're not actively dieting? Now, what I would say is plan, if you're going to do a one or two week diet break, you should plan those in the second half of the menstrual cycle. Okay. And let me tell you why. During the first two weeks of the menstrual cycle, appetite tends to be its most well-controlled, especially right before ovulation. This is kind of, that's when women's energy levels tend to be best. It's kind of, this is the best time to a start a diet or restart a diet because it's way easier to get two weeks of good uh, momentum going when your appetite's controlled than the second half of the standard cycle when women's appetite tends to be up, their cravings tend to be higher and it can be a lot more difficult to stick to a diet. So if you're gonna plan a seven day diet break, I would put that in that, PMS, PMT, that fourth week of the cycle. Put it there. Your appetite's probably off the chart. You may not feel great to begin. Go and just eat normally. And then as soon as you restart the next cycle, you can start dieting again. If you're going to do a two-week diet break, do it in weeks three and four. And, if and again, do you just would you just be like, I'm going to diet until I actually hit that? Yes. And like yes. So if you, if you don't have a regular cycle, I said a lot of this won't, won't hold. And I, I, I talk about all this in, in this, the women's book to get into all of the, because there are so many situations, birth control changes, everything about this, things change as women get older and menopause hits and all these, you know, working from the standard cycle only applies to a certain percentage of women. And I, I, I don't want anyone to. So yeah. So if you are dealing with an irregular cycle, like polycystic ovary syndrome, amenorrhea, loss of the menstrual cycle, which can happen for any number of reasons. In that case, I would typically say, I, I tend to set just discrete time frames depending on how much body fat you're carrying, right? So if you're somewhat lean, right? If you're below, like in the low 20% body fat or lower, I'd say plan a diet break every six to eight weeks. Yeah. If you are between say 25 and 35% body fat, which is moderate, you might plan on every 10 to 12 weeks. And if you're carrying more body fat than that, you could probably go up to 16 weeks. But what a lot of people when they're dieting notice, you get to that point, right? Let's face it, dieting sucks. Yeah. I don't like it. You don't like, nobody likes it. It sucks. No matter how you do it, it's a matter of making it less miserable. <laughs> And I personally think that breaking it up in discrete blocks at least make it cycle, makes it psychologically easier. Anyone can die for three days and eat at maintenance. Anyone can die for six weeks and then have a week off. To tell you, you're going to have to die for the next six months without a break, it's just mentally shattering. It's too much, to, right? Athletes all take an easy week every so often. And yet we expect dieters to just diet hard the entire time. It's just, it, it breaks. So anyway, people will reach this point in a diet that, you know, we're always, you're a little bit hungry. You wish you could eat more. Some of that with dieting is psychological. Like you ever notice on the first day of a diet, you want to eat more than you can, but not because you're hungry, just because you know that you can't. It's that yeah. weird 
human thing. It's like, what do you mean I can't eat whatever I want? Well, now I want it. I mean, I'm not even hungry for it, but I just want it on principle. It's that. But there is a point where the hunger becomes all-encompassing, which tends to be indicative that there's a lot of hormonal changes going on. There's changes occurring in brain chemistry that sort of all you can think about is food. over anything else enjoyable in life. There's also, and this is really hard to describe until you've experienced it. There's just this sense of just like general fatigue and malaise. And I don't want to call it depression because it's not, but it's like, there's just this like, oh, you just can't handle it anymore. Or you might see, like we talked about that your fat loss is just slow to an absolute crawl. Well, that's a really good time to move into maintenance for a couple of weeks. Yeah usually nothing will change. In the first study they did on this, even if you gain a pound, worst case scenario, when you go back to active dieting, your metabolic rate will be in a better place. Your energy will be in a better place. You'll probably be able to train a little bit more. You will actually lose fat more effectively. And that was what one of the recent studies actually showed. Yeah, I did see that and, and it, was, it was fairly extreme. They did two weeks on, two weeks dieting, two weeks break, two, which I think is a little, little more than it needs to be. But what they found was that the, the group that took the frequent breaks saw less of a decrease in uh, overall metabolic rate, less of a decrease in that adaptive component, lost fat more effectively. So they, like I said, to, to alternate dieting every two weeks on, two weeks off makes the diet take forever. But I think it's kind of a proof of principle. Yeah. Said, if you're lean, six weeks on, two weeks off, which also fits the standard menstrual cycle anyway. Full month of dieting, two more weeks, two off. Start yeah. again. That works. Carry a little more body fat, 10 to 12 weeks, still fits. More than that, 12 to 16. If you hit that week, we're just like, I can't do this anymore. Make the choice to go off the diet. Don't go, I ate a cookie because I'm weak and now I'm just gonna go back to what I was doing. Keep it, if you keep it inside your own, now it's part of your diet. It's part of a more effective dieting strategy. Definitely. Yeah, good advice. I think that a lot of people have resonated with that. And especially a question coming in now about the contraceptive pill. Mm. Uh, and a lot of people say, I take the pill, I put weight on. Um, explain yes. what actually happens and what, how it goes from taking the pill to putting weight on. Okay, so <laughs> birth control is a nightmare in the sense of its complexity. It took me months to wrap my head around it. It nearly, when I was researching that part of the book, it just nearly broke me <laughs> because, and I, I want, I guess that this one, just to even explain birth control could take forever because we've got the pill, which actually encompasses numerous types. There's combined oral contraceptives that have synthetic estrogen and progesterone, two female reproductive hormones. There is a progesterone only pill they use different forms of progestin. Some use, are now using a bioidentical estrogen. They're taken on different schedules. Some people take them consistently. Then you've got the patch. You've got the ring. You've got the shot. You've got the hormonal IUD. And they all act a little bit differently in the body. It's brutal. And I'm not even going to try to get into it. So there has been since the 70s, right? And that's roughly when the pill kind of came into real common use. There is an idea that it causes weight gain. And certainly the earlier pills, which used much higher doses of much harsher compounds, did that. Now, if you look at all the research, a couple things sort of fall out of it. One is that the average weight gain from the pill is actually relatively small. 
two or three pounds, pound, uh, one, one and a half kilos thereabouts. But notice that I said average. When I really got into the studies, it was mind boggling to me what the variability was. Because, because think about it, right? If I take 20 women and 10 gain 10 pounds and 10 lose 10 pounds, well, the average was zero, but that average doesn't say anything about what the women actually experienced. Yeah. And this is always a problem when you're representing it. So in one, in one of the papers, they, they tested a whole bunch of different types of pill. And so the average was, was very, very low, but, it, it, the, but they, they re reported the largest gain and the largest loss. And one woman lost, this is like over a year, one woman lost like 30 pounds, like 16 kilos over a year. And another one gained, I think the, the largest is she gained 30 kilos in a year, over 60 pounds. And I don't even know how that's really possible. But what's also interesting is that they tend to see the same thing with non-hormonal versions of, of non-hormonal birth control. So the general suggestion seems to be that it's more just variability in lifestyle. They've done a couple studies on athletes that when they control their calories and their activity, there really isn't any significant weight gain, but there is individual variance. Some, some of the, the, the heavy progestins, progestins are synthet synthetic form of progesterone. Progesterone tends to be why women get hungrier in the second half of, that, of their cycle and tend to crave certain foods. Some of the progestins, depending on the dose and, and what type they are, tend to drive hunger. Yeah. And so I think it probably also high dose estrogen does cause water retention. And that is a real, real, real common effect of that. Um, estrogen sort of changes the way your bottle, body handles sodium. So if you're on a high sodium diet, it tends to kind of make it worse, but the estrogen component of birth control can cause, you know, two, three pounds, kilo and a half of water. Some women also just seem to be more prone to weight gain. It, it's not, uh, I've seen it stated some physicians think that like 25% of women are more predisposed to weight gain with birth control. Um, yeah. Some of that depends on the birth control. There's one called Yasmin or Yaz. They used a very new form of, of birth control called a new, very new compound. It causes a couple pound weight loss, but it's by dehydrating women. Hmm. So, but the, the typical estrogen-based birth control can cause a two or three pound weight gain very, very, but it's, it, it is water, but it's still annoying. I mean, don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. Saying it it's just water is dismissive. Still psychologically, it still beat you down in the mornings when you weigh yourself and uh, sure. you know it's water. Um, yeah. There's a comment you're saying that, um, okay, let me, there's a lot of comments coming in. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, um, what a thought. Okay, so how does the contraceptive pill impact weight? We just spoke about that. I find that yeah. I'm not losing anything for the last four months, even though I'm doing everything right. And by right, we'd say she's probably not counting her. She's probably not in a deficit for one, would be the first thing. And yeah, I've never seen anything to really suggest that it would stop it for that long. Like the, 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 the weight gain is never more than really a few pounds. Although if you can respond, ask her which specific contraceptive she's on. Yeah, which contraceptive? Okay, Allah, if you could let me know what contraceptive and I can get back to that question. Um, let's have a look. Yeah. So yeah, so what you're saying is 
it impacts them more. The, the, the bigger impact comes from the hunger increase and the water retention more than the pill actually makes you put fat on. It doesn't. Uh, yes. I said some, I said it gets so complicated because there's so many different kinds. There is, there is something. So without getting too far into the weeds on this, birth control, oral birth control can be divided into what's called monophasic birth control, which means they keep the hormones the same all the way through. But there's also a triphasic birth control where they stair step the, the synthetic progesterone. Three, they're, they're trying to make it kind of look like the hormonal profile of the standard cycle. Those have been shown to cause fat gain because of that very, very, very high dose of progesterone in that third week. Like that, those, that tends to be the really problematic type. I don't know how often they're used though. And that's why sort of talking about this, I can't get past many generalities because there's just so many different kinds. Did she respond with what type she's on? Um, Rigevidon. Rigevidon? R-I-G-E-V-I-D-O-N. All right, let me Google that up real quick. While I'm doing this, the one I would say, and the one that I genuinely, R-I-G-E-V-I-D-O-N. Yeah, okay. Oh, it's a lot easier being a man. Sorry, member. No, I know. I, I get. I get genuinely like. No, I genuinely is right. And this was a big part of why I kind of wrote the women's book. Men are truly like really easy because we don't have any of this stuff. Guy no. walks into the gym every day. We're the same guy, right? We're the same jackass that we were the day before. With women, every two weeks there's a major change in our physiology. Weekly there are smaller changes. It can impact energy level, mood, coordination, performance, not to mention that women vary enormously. Some of the women listening to this probably experience PMS or premenstrual tension to the point that they cannot physically get out of bed, right? There's something called premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Women may, be, may experience suicidal ideation. They are physically incapacitated and other women don't experience any of it. The variability is just staggering. And with guys, the variability is just in how much of a jackass they are. <laughs> um, but by and large, is that you just don't see it. And you certainly don't see these, these weekly changes. So the, this, the Rigividon is combined sort of it. Pill, he says, it's a combined pill. Yeah, it's a combined pill. It has sort of the standard amounts. It's 30 micrograms of synthetic estrogen, which is admittedly at the higher end. 150 micrograms of one of the newer progestins. I would not expect that in and of itself to prevent anything from happening for four months. And like I said, I don't, don't ever, I don't, this is, it's so easy for this to come across as dismissing individual experiences. And I really don't, I don't want to hear that. There no. is, I don't want to be heard saying that certainly. Especially when there's so many different factors going to female weight loss. I mean, oh yeah. No, like I said, some women seem to be more prone to it. In general, I still tend to like always at least spot check calories. It is, and again, for this point that we're all bad at it, <laughs> that I don't ever want, I'm never singling out an individual going, you and you alone are cheating on your diet. I'm not saying that, but we are all really, really bad at it. Now it is possible. This could be impacting her appetite, could be impacting other, other components of that. Uh, like I said, energy expenditure, another mistake we make in sort of, with fat loss, we assume that, that our maintenance level never changes. And it not only changes with dieting, like let's address the current 
what's going on in the world right now. Yeah. Those of us who used to, and certainly not me because I work at home, if you had a job that required you to be on your feet and walk a lot, and now you're at home all day, you're burning enormously less calories because you're not moving around as much. Your maintenance a month ago before this whole thing started is much probably likely to be much higher than it is now when you're sitting at home yeah. wondering when it's, you know, again, depending on what you're doing. So these are all, all four of these components, resting metabolic rate, how much you burn with formal exercise, that spontaneous activity, uh, those can all vary. So it's always, it's entirely possible for any drug, birth control or otherwise, to be impacting that. So her calories might be where she thinks, where she expects them to be. And it's possible that her maintenance has also changed. Because I fundamentally, I wouldn't expect the, 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 that, that form of birth control itself to prevent anything for four months. I would suspect yeah. something else is going on. But it's, I, I might ask, if she was actively dieting prior to being on the birth control, was she able to lose effectively? Yeah. Just to see if that's the variable or something to, to at least look at. Another question um, up is um, how do we work on maintenance? Now, what we do, we do a macro plan where we just sure no foods off the table, similar to the flexible diet and book approach you've done. Mm -hmm. um, you know, pounds times 14 for low active people, the same, the kind of simplified calculation you've done. Would yes. you say that is, Obviously, trial and error is the only way you're going to really find out. Correct. What I typically recommend, so, so no matter what you do after you've lost some amount of body fat and dieted down, said you'll burn less calories mostly as a function of being smaller. But there is also that adaptive component, that hormonal effect that will reduce your, your energy expenditure to a greater degree than you would predict. Mm -hmm. Now, when you go back to maintenance, most of that goes away. Right. A lot of these stuff you'll read like, oh, my God, there's this 25 percent reduction. Like that is during active dieting. Most of it will reverse. However, there's always a little bit left over and it may not be much, maybe only be 100, 150 calories a day. What I typically recommend to people when they initially move to maintenance is take their calculated maintenance, right, that 14 per pound or thereabouts, start maybe 10 percent below that which on average is, yeah, five to 10%, maybe a couple hundred calories, just as a safety buffer, right? Now, when you start eating even slightly more carbohydrates, your body weight is gonna go up a little bit from water retention. There's gonna be this short-term fluctuation. Ignore what happens in those first few days. That's just more food in your stomach, undigested stuff moving through your, all of that stuff. And then track for the next eight or 10 days. If your weight's still going down a little bit, you can raise your calorie. If you feel like your body weight's sort of going, and again, women have the cycle to, to take into account that makes it harder, but start yeah. a, with a little bit of a safety buffer, better to be a little bit too low, than yeah. low, and then you can just adjust it up and you'll sort of find that sweet spot. Yeah, makes sense, makes sense. We've got some really, uh, <laughs> some really specific questions coming up. I'm sure. Um, so Pavlina, Hey, I was on some form of contraception pill coil for the over 20 years and last August had sepsis so my, from my coil and had to have it removed. Okay. Uh, so I'm not on any form of birth control. Okay. And I've really struggled to lose weight. Actually, I just keep, input, keep putting on weight. Why is it this? In this? Okay, so I think what she's describing is the hormonal IUD, the intrauterine device, right? It's a little... T-shaped copper coil like this, that there's a non-hormonal version that's simply a barrier method. It simply blocks uh, 
the man's sperm from getting to the egg. There's also a, horm a hormonal version that releases hormones locally. Um, honestly, in this case, I would be more prone to say that the, the hormonal IUD is really interesting. It only releases hormones within the uterus. None of it really gets into the bloodstream. So it doesn't have any physiological effects. Honestly, I'd say most of this is probably just aging. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that there couldn't be something in it. It could have been related to something relate, more related to the sepsis than anything, just the, the, the whatever conditions or inflammation that caused. But honestly, I think the main fact is simply that it's 20 years later. Um, and the reality is everything gets harder and kind of slows down um, more so than any real direct hormonal effect. One thing I did want to mention real quickly before the next question, just because I was talking about it. Yeah. I think I mentioned the shot. And if I didn't, I should have. There's a form of birth control in the US, it's Depo-Provera. I think there's another form that's being used. And it is a shot that's given in the back of the arm every three months. It is like four decades old. It is this really nasty, harsh, synthetic progestin, progesterone. It is the worst. I think it should be taken off the market and I will maintain that probably till my dying day. Of all the forms of birth control, it is the one associated with the most average weight gain, upwards of seven pounds, three and a half kilos. It doubles the risk of obesity. It can cause problems with bone mineral density. The stuff is nasty. And the only reason they use it is because it's convenient because you get, excuse me, one shot every three months, right? For long-term, you know, the pill, women can forget to take the pill. The patch has to be changed weekly. The ring has to be changed weekly. There is a small, uh, implant that goes in the back of the arm that lasts for three years, but it's inpatient surgery. The shot, boom, and you're done for three months. But I think the side effect, that one particularly, and I have heard horror stories of women who were on that and came off, and they, I mean, they, it took them months to get back to hormonal normalcy um, before anything would happen. It's, it's nasty, nasty, nasty. Yeah, that sounds, that does sound nasty. Um, I'm just gonna. I'm just going through the comments now. See if there's anything that pops up we didn't spoke about. So sorry to ask another question about PCOS. But are you oh no, absolutely. But are you suggesting that a calorie deficit should still work for those with PCOS? Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, and and there, I mean, the, the the research when they do all of this and they do, you know, a controlled deficit, fat loss always occurs. Um, one thing with PCOS women, and realize that PCOS is not a single thing. There's been a lot of realization in recent years that it, there's four different types of PCOS that can, can occur based on uh, the specific conditions present. But in most cases of PCOS, women become very insulin resistant, usually due to having high levels of testosterone. And there's a really, PCOS women frequently benefit from at least lowering their carbohydrate intake and often do respond, I think, slightly better to ketogenic diets because it helps address that insulin resistance, top of appetite stuff. Um, but so long as there's a, I've seen nothing to really suggest that PCOS per se. I think what happens is it may be tough to track just because hormones are so all over the map. Um, yeah. Day to day to day, they're just fluctuating in, in wild and fairly random ways. It's definitely yeah. tough. <laughs> Why well, sounds mild. Um, so we have to sepsis through how much water a day. Okay, here's a, here's a good one. Let's go to water attention quickly about, mm -hmm. um, let's talk about first, like why do we hold on to water if we don't drink enough water? And why is it when we hit, hit the certain threshold of daily water intake, do we tend to 
look a lot better, but also feel for uh, like the, the benefits are insane. What what we get, what we see. Yeah. Like explain that. Um, so water is one of those compounds. It's so critical to you know human health and physiology, right? Like I'm sure you all know. You know, you could technically not eat for a month. You know, they've 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 put there. There's a case study of an extremely obese individual who ate no food for something like 368 days, something absurd. Without water, you can go without water for about three days. So water balance in the body is incredibly important because you die. And what happens is that when you reduce, when water intake is low, when you're dehydrated, number of hormones go up. One of them is called anti-diuretic hormone, right? So what is a diuretic? A diuretic makes you lose water, right? So an anti-diuretic hormone is the opposite of that. And a couple of others whose names I forget. And there's all these changes that basically cause the body to go, okay, we're not getting enough fluid. We need to hold on to every drop that we can. And so you sort of, you do start retaining water. Then as you increase your water intake, those hormones after two or three days go back down. And you basically end up, you know, back, back in the day, bodybuilders would talk about doing a quote unquote water flush. And it's actually, it's something I've written about every once in a while, right? For, for, for women that think they're retaining water very heavily. And honestly, I suspect women more so than men have a sense for when that's occurring, mainly because they have generally had the standard, like they, women know clothes feel different. Like, like you look different. You look puffy. Frequently, if you push into like your thigh or your calf, it kind of compresses and doesn't come back. Like that's, there's these sort of telltale signs of water retention. Over in the U.S., women will talk about how they, they have uh, cankles uh, during the fourth week of their cycle, which is just their ankles oh, swell. Uh, so I just said, okay, their, their ankles will physically swell, right? They, they kind of, women just sort of know what that feels like. And so that happens on a diet. And so bodybuilders, when they thought things weren't happening, they would just like pound water for three days. And then when they take the water out, frequently the body water will just drop quickly. Weight class athletes like power lifters, wrestlers, Olympic lifters, they'll do the same thing. They'll load water and sodium for three days, right? So you're just hyperhydrating. And the body will lower levels of all those hormones that make you retain water. And then when they drop their water intake, they just start losing weight like crazy. Yeah. And it can be significant. It can be like a kilo, a kilo and a half of water overnight, right? It can be really significant. So that's kind of what's going on is that when water, when water intake is too low, your body goes, uh-oh, raises levels of these hormones so that you stop losing any more. And I think you also see some distributions, right? You can hold water within your muscle, within your bloodstream or underneath the skin. Yeah the stuff that goes underneath the skin that makes you just look puffy you lose any definition that you had um i don't know that stuff i don't get too deep into but that's you can see shifts in fluid levels right yeah. so and and so ideally like we would like it to be within the muscle will make you look very full within the bloodstream will make your veins pop out if that is something that you happen to like and not much under the skin, right? This is what bodybuilders want to achieve on contest day. Yeah. Full muscles, nice vascularity, thin skin. And that tends to go south when you're dehydrated. So you start drinking water, body releases those, reduces those hormone levels and everything kind of goes back to normalcy. So two things then with that. So water intake as a consistent level each day, is that the best yes. approach? Is that the best approach? Or yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, because what 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 you also tend to see is, and well, actually, this is more to probably to do with sodium than water per se. Is like if you go from high to low, you tend to see like a, a, a quick weight drop, right? If you've been on a high sodium diet and you cut it out, you'll drop several pounds. If you've been on a low sodium diet and go high, you'll gain several pounds, right? We've all been there when you decide not only to break your diet but to go eat some really salty, salty, fatty stuff, and you gain three or four pounds overnight. Um, water, I would rather just see people drinking a sufficient amount on a day-to-day -day basis to keep, unless they're specifically manipulating water weight, like I said, for powerlifting meat. But that that's done by high-level athletes. It can cause problems. I train a female powerlifter. We do that for three days, once every three or four months, just for her, for her competition. How much, Which then how, I, how go much, ahead. How much is sufficient water per day? And does it depend on the woman or the person's height and weight? Um, it depends on even more than that. This is one of those things where you've all heard, what, eight, eight ounce glasses of water and, oh, good grief. I think that's a liter a day. I'm, yeah. no, that's, <laughs> two, I think it's two liters. <laughs> so bad, I'm so bad at metric. 32 ounces, I think is a liter. I don't yeah. know. Um, that sounds right. And uh, that number got direct, kind of thrown out there decades ago by, and it, it doesn't really mean anything. The problem is that water, requirements between any two people can vary enormously. Okay. I think there's a genetic component. I think there's an ethnic component. I am Middle Eastern, right? My, my ancestors, my, my people evolved in a very arid desert land. Yeah. I don't drink a lot. I'll be honest. I don't drink a lot of water. I don't need to. I, I handle the heat very well. I don't seem to dehydrate very easily unless I really work. I've known other people. I had a significant other from the UK. She couldn't hold water. She would drink liters a day and not be able to retain any of it. There's So one way to do it is to just drink to thirst. Generally speaking, thirst is a pretty good indicator of water, water needs. There, there's an old idea that thirst lags behind hydration, but that's not true. For older, as, as people get older, as women get older, that does tend to be the case. This is a little, probably a little bit more accurate and a little bit, this is something that as a boy, it's very easy for me to say. It's something my mentor taught me years ago. Ideally, you want to have five clear urinations a day, two of which are after your workout. Now, obviously, this does mean looking at your pee, right? Athletes will do this. If you go in certain athletic training centers, they'll have charts on the wall. It'll be like, what color is your pee? From clear, light yellow, bright yellow, dark, dark, and it can get really dark. You want it to be towards the clear end of things. And if you're getting that consistently, you're probably drinking enough or drinking. To, like, I don't think you have to force it. Um, but at the same time, like I said, uh, necessarily pound, you know, because I have, I've seen, what is it like an ounce per pound? I've seen all an ounce per kilo. I've seen all kinds of numbers thrown out. But the variability there, especially during exercise, the amount of water any two people will lose is just staggering on a day-to-day -day basis or workout-for-workout -workout basis. So, yeah, so just trial and error, drink a bit more water, see if it does anything, and uh, you, you'd go off just thirst. Uh, generally speaking, like I said, as we get older, our thirst mechanism tends to be a little bit slow to respond, especially during exercise. So like if there are like, like female masters athletes, uh, who may be in the other late forties to fifties and older, if you're doing like exercise in the heat, you'll probably have to force yourself to drink a little more than your thirst would indicate. But generally speaking, um, until that point, thirst will be a pretty good indicator. Cool.
got a got a Kaylee Johnson news on the injection. Yeah. Would yeah. you recommend her now to actually change that up? Because you say, would you say to go and change? Well, it? admittedly, this is you know now we're getting like I don't want to necessarily don't be giving advice. medical sorry, <laughs> sorry please. medical advice. I will say to try to hedge my bets of all the forms of birth control, it would be my absolute last choice unless it was the only one that could be, because there are frequently medical reasons, right? And this is something, obviously if there's a medical reason, someone needs to be on a specific type, I'm not gonna get in the middle of that. I think <laughs> as a voluntary choice, I think the implanon or the next one on the implant is probably better. It is a small inpatient incision. It is a much milder type of project. Like De Depo Provera, it's a 50 year old compound that they're still, and I don't know why they still use that specifically, but I think of all of them, it has the highest risk ratio of all things. Yeah. Um, I, it's just, it is my least in on, on a, I've also known women that have been on it for decades and never had a problem. So it's just something that concerns me. enough with Kaylee is that she was one of our one-to-one -one coaching clients and she wouldn't be losing weight for weeks on end. And we'd make her take photos of what she was eating to make sure okay. she was eating yeah. in the calories. Still Interesting. So maybe it's to do with that. Maybe more than... It, it, yeah, of, of all of them, I would say that's, like I said, pro really genuinely, because uh, the worst, the progesterone in women's bodies tends to drive appetite, especially. It does tend to sort of directly stimulate fat storage, and Depo is still one of the most potent synthetic forms of that in use today. Why they have not developed something based on a newer compound, I have no idea, um, but, but they really need to. Yeah. So I do think it's worth considering certainly moving to, like I said, I get it. It's one shot every three months. It's just fire and forget. Um, and yeah. it doesn't require surgery, but I, I, I think it's worth considering. And, and, and the nice thing about Depo in this sense is if she just skips her next shot, it will clear in s several months and you'll know. If suddenly things click into place, that was the answer. And, but if it's not that, it's easy enough to go right back on. Right. That is the one thing. It's easy to end because you just don't go get your next shot. And it's easy to restart, comparatively speaking. Hormonal IED, minor surgery to be implanted. There can be issues. It's surgery. Implanon, you know, they have to make an incision in the arm to both put it in and take it out. Depo is definitely convenient in that regards. Yeah. Well, like people are staying here that they've learned more in the last hour than they have years of dieting. So good. I'm glad I could help. And, and I want to say, when I was researching the women's book, I learned more in three years than I probably had in the past. Like it's, it's a topic that I had avoided for a decade because I think I knew on some level it was going to be complicated, but I don't think I realized just how complicated it was going to be. So as much of an absolute, I mean, it was exhausting because I could have kept going down the rabbit hole on women. Women are complicated in a way that men just aren't. There are so many changes. There are so many differences. There's so much variability in literally everything. And yeah. whenever I do a big project like that, even though it nearly kills me, I come out of it learning, having learned so much that just like, and, and that's a lot of why I still do this because it's yeah. still just, and women are fascinating on every level. Yeah. I was waiting for you. I was waiting for to come out because you had a release date and you were like, ah, it's going to take me. Uh, and you were going to rewrote it again or something. Oh, God. My book projects, I've stopped giving release dates because I've never <laughs> made one. It's always, I liken it to, you know, when you get construction done on the house 
and they tell you it'll take two weeks. Yeah. Well, that's the kind. My first book was two more weeks for about a year because it's it's just Martin of uh, nutrition. <laughs> it's God. It's all. It's just. It's unfathomable how much you know. And the writing, it is not even necessary. The writing is not, but it's just. It's the editing and the organizing and all that stuff takes so much longer than you think. So, yeah. Well, we go. We go. We go through more questions. Go for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You are Eugene Levy from American Pie, apparently. Uh, also, Harold Ramis. Um, if you look, not quite as close. Definitely Eugene Levy. Um, I've got the gray hair, the glasses, the facial structure, but yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> well, we got a question from Leah Stanford here. I came off the pill last year, and my menstrual cycle has only recently come back this year after a whole year. Can diet play a part in balancing the hormones to help with? The menstrual cycle can diet actually can it be the other way around diet help that um help you mean in terms of getting things back to normal or yeah, the hormones to help with that so can you diet balance your hormones essentially that's the question um you know there are some small changes in hormone levels like estrogen can be lowered if you go on a very low fat diet um by and large i think it tends to be more physiological and working most of that is kind of just determined in, in, it's the same thing for men, right? People talk a lot about, oh, you eat more fat and your testosterone goes up. Yeah, by an absolutely inconsequential amount. And I, I know there's a lot of sort of functional medicine people that talk about estrogen and progesterone dominance and, and ways to impact on that. I, I, I don't know that I've seen much or looked into it in huge detail. Probably yeah. the, the, the big one, you know, is making sure women, I find a lot of women and probably not your clients because you're doing more of a quantified thing. Women often make dietary choices that I would definitely say are suboptimal. Um, more, more, it, it tends to hamper their nutrient intake. Frequently, they will cut out all red meat. They can become zinc and iron deficient, uh, which can cause anemia. Also, low zinc and low iron can decrease uh, metabolic rate, which I bet I just got everybody's attention there. Um, certain things like I find a lot of women also overemphasize carbs, eat too little fat, too little protein. I'm sure you've run into that with. And again, I'm not. I'm don't. I'm not being critical. This is what women are told to do. Yeah. By a lot of really like I'm criticizing all of the misinformation that's out there. Yeah. We can only know what we know, right? I did it. I did it when I was an endurance athlete. I ate 10% dietary fat and I felt terrible all the time. Um, so certainly in that regards, there can be some effects uh, at the extremes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, getting sufficient nutrients, sufficient dietary protein, you know, moderate amounts of dietary fat, the fish oils, like all of that is kind of going, going about as far as I personally think you can really get. Um, yeah. yeah, interesting. Well, one, another question that comes up a lot is, um, how can I lose fat on my, you know, on my belly or my hip dips and all that, what the women call yep. it, you can't spot reduce fat. Um, yep. The book I read of yours, The Stubborn Fat Solution yep. and The Ultimate Diet and did that kind yes. of where you did high intensity, low intensity, high intensity. Yes. Um, when should someone actually focus on something as specific as that for stubborn fat or will it just come off over time or do you actually have to do something specific to get it hard for people? Um, the answer is yes and no. So, the, the, and again, this is a place where just kind of making a general statement, right? When men want to lose fat, what do we do? We go weight train and we eat all the protein. Men love ketogenic diets. I get to eat meat and fat all day. That is like heaven for a man. And go li like, that's what we do. And traditionally women either have or have been told to eat all the carbs and go do all the cardio. 
yeah. right? And I'm sure you've had coaching clients. We've all seen it online. Women that did that for years and got nowhere. And all of a sudden they decide, and if they're lifting weights, they're following the other bad advice to never go too heavy and lift lightweight. And then, and then, and everything that bad, bad trainers tell us to do, tell women to do. And as soon as you get them lifting, not heavy in the sense of you're a power lifter, but challenging yourself and you start eating more protein to moderate your carbs, it's like a magic trick, right? All of a sudden in two months, women get more visible changes than they got in two years and go, damn it. Why didn't anybody tell me? But a lot of that, without, I don't want to get into the details, women's physiology tends to be geared towards sparing, burning fat for fuel, and also sparing muscle. Their, their bodies tend to rely, use, use nutrients during exercise very differently than them. And this is part of the problem. And usually when they do these studies, did all the early study, it was like, oh, we put women on diet and basic low intensity and cardio, the same old thing. And they, women would typically just kind of lose fat in the, the upper body, right? We typically kind of lose fat from the top down, right? Our faces start to get lean. If you have visceral fat, uh, that gut fat sort of deep, more common in men, but also common in women with PCOS, that tends to go next, right? It doesn't really make a big vis- visible difference, but you feel leaner. It's hard to describe it. You just feel, huh, I, my stomach's fine. I just feel leaner than typically abdominal low back fat. And then hip and thigh fat always sort of comes off last. Now for men, men typically don't carry a lot of hip and thigh fat. So for men, the stubborn fat is abdominal fat. Yeah. Whereas for women, women will have a shredded upper body, full six pack, cut delts, and frequently carrying fat on their hips and thighs. And both want what the other has. Men would happily take fat on their thighs to have that six pack. And women would happily lose the six pack. But when I started looking at some of the, and this was long after I wrote Stubborn Fat, which dealt with why stubborn fat cells are stubborn. And there's a bunch of physiological reasons, low blood flow. Again, women's bodies store fat in the hips and thighs to cover pregnancy. One of the interesting things when women become pregnant and are nursing, hip and thigh fat becomes the easiest to lose. And at one point I pursued the idea, like, can we mimic what happens in pregnancy? And I didn't get anywhere with the project, but I spent some months on it because there's, that's what that fat sort of exists for. Mm. And unfortunately your body doesn't know that you don't care about that. It's just going to do. However, when I started looking at some of the research for the women's book, studies that had, they, they would compare the two. They're like, all right, we did low intensity work or we did high intensity work. Low intensity work took mainly body fat off the trunk and the, the midsection, the high intensity work took the body fat off more evenly. So I think a lot of what was true when I wrote Stubborn Fat is somewhat less, and this is true almost irrespective of body fat percentage, right? This wasn't just in lean women, even in, because realistically researchers don't care about fat loss in leaner individuals for mm. what seems, which unless they're athletic researchers, that's yeah. not the group that they need to be concerned with. They typically study individuals carrying more body fat. And even in that population, including some high intensity work does seem to proportionally increase the loss of lower body fat in women. So I think, so I wrote Stubborn Fat in uh, the late 2000s. And at that time, I think we were still really tied into more traditional dieting in terms of lots of low intensity cardio, higher carbohydrate, you know, that sort of thing. I think in the modern era, the way more people are training, it's not quite as pronounced 
Well, again, there's absolutely, I can go to my gym. Well, when it reopens, I can go to my gym and I will see many women toiling away with low intensity cardio for an hour, doing themselves very little good. Whereas if they would do interval training once or twice a week or go perform some high intensity weight training, that helps to overcome a lot of that almost regardless. Now, do you need to get into my specific protocols and diet and supplements? Probably not so you get leaner, yeah. but even in court, but, but I think honestly, all good coaches at this point and all good trainers, because I, I, I argued about this with some bodybuilding prep coaches. They said, we're not seeing stubborn fat problems. I go, right, but look yeah. at how you're dieting people now versus how they dieted back in the day. Yeah. You're including intervals once or twice a week. Your yeah, carbs exactly. are mu- carbs are much more moderate than they were, and that's a key aspect. Even Duchesne mentioned that 20 years ago. Lowering carbs helps mobilize women's lower body fat. So when you so I think with more modern dieting practices, it's what what people. I'll, I'm going to go ahead and take credit for this, even if I shouldn't. What they're essentially doing is implementing basically what I wrote about in 2008 as being par for the course. That's simply how you diet people now, as opposed to the 80s, where bodybuilders dieted by lifting, doing two hours of low intensity cardio and eating 75% carbs. And that's when you saw the real problems. So the answer is yes and no. When you get very lean, again, these prep coaches are like, we're not seeing it. We're seeing women get to 10%. Because by the time you get that lean, one of two things happen. By the time a woman's at 15% body fat, she will have a full six pack. She will have veins across her delts and packs. If she keeps losing to 10%, well, the fat has to come off from somewhere. Yeah. And what I typically would see, I dieted a female competitor years and years and years ago. She was shredded up here and her hips and thighs hadn't moved hardly at all. We weren't doing intervals. This was early days. And then right at the very end, her hips and thigh fat just started dropping like a rock. Now, again, she was eating very low carbs. There were elements of what I had written about in stubborn fat present, and I think they're more present now. So I think as long as women are doing, and I've seen some work, there was one year or two ago, weird little paper that suggested spot reducing might be possible, although I'm still not convinced. They had them do upper body weight training and lower body cardio, or lower body weight training and upper body. It was a really weird paper, and I'd have to go look at it again. And I think they found... The upper body weights and lower body cardio lost more fat from the upper body and vice versa. Like it gave, and I'm not, the problem is upper body cardio is not the same as lower body cardio hormonally and intensity and all that other stuff. Paper just came out that went, oh, we did 10 minutes of interval training before low intensity cardio. And not only did they burn more fat during the exercise, they burn more afterwards. I'm like, God, that sounds so familiar, man. Like, Somebody had written a book about that 12 years ago. Um, so yeah, so I, but I think that's one way to do it for yeah. your clients for women listening to this. Well, By doing even a small amount of high intensity work, whether it's some weight training or intervals, and then doing some low intensity to burn off those fatty acids. I think even at higher body fat percentages, it will, you're still going to lose more easily from the upper body. Yeah. However, it will prevent it from being all upper body until the very end. Okay, define high intensity training. People, I tell mm. people, high intensity is high intensity. You know, when you see a sprinter do a hundred meter sprint yes. in the Olympics, at the end of it, they can't even speak properly. They have given right. it seconds all out training. Yeah, women in my in my experience tend to not train as intense when we say high intensity as men sure. typically do. So, how can you help them visualize what high intensity training actually is? Okay, so imagine you're doing cardio. 
right? So you're brisk walking, you can talk all day, every day, you're probably not breathing very hard. Now you move to a higher intensity, you're working, and they call it the talk test, you can keep a broken conversation. Now you get to an intensity that you're dying. You can keep going, right? You can continue, but it's taking every ounce of concentration, right? And this has various names, right? That is sort of, well, I'll just call it your functional threshold. Like that's the intensity you could maintain for an hour, but it would be the hardest hour of your life. <laughs> I was an endurance athlete for years. Those are the worst workouts I ever did. Yeah. Three hours of easy riding, no problem. 100 meter sprint, no problem. An hour of suffering, worst hour ever. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you were to go above that functional threshold, you would fatigue very rapidly, right? And if you went a little bit over it, you might make 90 seconds before you gave up. If you went 20% above it, you might make 30 to 45 seconds. If you went all out, that's the sprinter. You might make it 10 seconds, like truly gave it everything you got. A high intensity in this context would be above that functional threshold, an intensity that you could go that basically would be an all out effort for between say 30 seconds at the short end, 90 seconds, that's tough. It can be done. It'll have to be a little bit like, so here's your functional threshold, right? 90 seconds might be just here, especially if you're going to do it four or five times. Mm. 30 seconds would be up here. And 10 seconds would be as hard, all out, as hard as you could go. So on average, and I think in stubborn fat, 30 to 45 seconds. For women, I would actually recommend a little bit longer than men. This has to do with all the differences in how women use fuel. They need to go a little bit, I would say 45 to 60 seconds at an effort that you can just get to 60 seconds before you need to rest. Like now you're going to rest. Like, you know, out really out of breath, body needing to rest. Yes. Minimum. Right. Or, you know, or, or to keep going, you would have to really drastically decrease, like say you're on a bike. And I do, I don't recommend this running for most people. It takes a lot of skill. So when you get tired running, you get hurt. When you yeah. get tired on a bike or an elliptical trainer or a rowing machine, you just stop, right? Yeah. So imagine you're on a bike and you're just going and going and going. And you get to 60 seconds. The only way to keep going is to go much more slowly because you're done, Okay. right? It's that maximum intensity you can maintain. So then you're going to rest one to two minutes. Women do recover a little faster than men for stuff like this. Um, go again in 60 seconds. Rest do that maybe five total times. And what this is doing is it's jacking up a bunch of hormones that help to sort of mobilize that stubborn fat. And if you want the details, read stubborn fat solution, won't bore you with it, it's already too long. And <laughs> go catch your breath for a few minutes and then do maybe 30 minutes of brisk walking or moderate intensity work. Because what that does is, is that high intensity work just mobilize that fat for fuel. It got the fat, cell, the fat pulled out of the fat cells. Now, if you don't do something with them, they can go right back in. Women have a fascinating ability. They can store fat in their upper body after a meal, mobilize it during exercise or between meals and store it back in their legs. Because <laughs> as, I've, flip the as, from the as I've said for years, your body hates you, but women's bodies hate them more. <laughs> it's fascinating. The stuff women can, that, yeah. because yeah, it's really bizarre. So it, once you've gotten those fats, fat out of the fat cells with that high intensity work, you need to go burn them off your body. That's where that lower or moderate intensity activity does. Go do 30 or four. There's your hour, right? Your 10 minute warm up. So how many, how many sprints? Five all out sprints? Five, five should be plenty. 
um, with a minute, 45 seconds to a minute hard, 45 seconds to a minute, e very easy. In between, just keep your legs moving. Would you, because I see a lot of people saying I did spin class for an hour. I'm like, if spin was truly high intensity, there's no, it's really hard for women to have done 60 minutes of high intensity interval training on a spin class. Yes, it's been a really long time. I did spin when it was very, very early. We're talking, I want to say, mid 90s, I, like when spin first started, it tends to be sort of moderate and then they'll put in jumps or intervals or I don't know what the classes are structured at right like right now, but sort of by definition, like if somebody says, oh, I did 60 minute of interval training. No, you didn't. No. Yeah. I've been a competitive endurance athlete for most of my life. I've done interval workouts that made me want to cry and it can't be done. What can be done is an hour of activity with intervals thrown in every once in a while, which also works, right? That's something endurance cyclists that, you know, bike racers, they'll do that. They'll go ride for a couple hours and they'll throw in sprints every so often. It doesn't have to be just the intervals and then the low intensity, but yeah. get a mix of both. Okay. Um, even certain types of weight training. And this isn't necessarily the best for, you know, strength or muscle growth, but sort of that, that metabolic weight training or some of the stuff CrossFit does where they'll go battle ropes, kettlebells, things of that nature. What you're trying to do is get this hormonal response that only, only occurs when you get near that, that maximum threshold. You know, so go do battle ropes for 60 seconds, walk it off for a minute, go do battle ropes for 60 seconds, go walk on the treadmill afterward. Like it, it doesn't, excuse me, have to be a cardio modality, you know, go, you can do higher rep, lower rest weight training for metabolic purposes mm -hmm. where you do, you know, six sets of 15 with a 60 second break with a, heavy enough to be challenging, but not so heavy that you're, you're going to get hurt. So it just, but it needs to be above a certain threshold intensity. Yeah. And if you can do it for an hour, it's not, it's not there. Too high intensity. Yeah. That's what I was saying. Um, okay, so you've got Emma Louise here. I've recently lost five stone. Amazing. Um, and carrying, Damn, yeah. Yeah, it's good. And carrying the fat on my hips and upper thighs, can't seem to shift no matter what I do. Would you recommend doing something like the 20 minutes of hit followed by yes. the minutes? Okay. Yeah, that, that, and that's exactly, you know, that that is the point. The, the body, even if you do everything right, the body still tends to lose fat from the easiest area. And for women, hips and thighs are, are the hardest. This would definitely be a time to bring in what we just talked about. Yeah. You know, now I will say if you're a beginner and if you're just starting to do that sort of high intensity training, ease into it, right? Yeah. The, wow. I, I, I love reading these studies are like, oh, we took beginners and we did like, no, you didn't. I don't believe I've done inner workouts for two days and I hated every one of them. Don't yeah. tell me you got a beginner to work at max. I don't believe it. Um, ease into it. So start with 15 seconds hard, 45 seconds easy. Do that for a few workouts and they ease up to it so that by week three, you're doing a full minute hard, full minute easy, followed up with low intensity cardio. Keep doing, because five stone is, I want to say 60 pounds, 25 kilos, 28 kilos. And it's 14 times five. Yeah, oh, so. it's 14. Good grief. That's even, it's, wow. Yeah, that's that's staggering. Congratulations. It's 30 kilos plus. Um, yeah. Amazing. And uh, so, yeah, def definitely this is the point where I think that will help to, to shift that lower bot, that hip thigh fat. Awesome. Great. Yeah, Emma, try that. Um, Sarah's asking, when you say moderate carbs, what percentage are you talking about or what grams are you talking about? 
Um, I tend to think in, in grams per pound or grams per kilo rather than percentages. And when you kind of math it out, and I won't bore you with this, you will typically end up at roughly maybe two to three kilos, sorry, two to three grams per kilo, right? I would consider that over in, you know, in non-metric land, a gram to a gram and a half per pound is about right, right? So if you are, oh, let's say a 60 kilo woman, um, I would probably, you know, at two to three kilos, that's 120 to 180 grams per day. I would yeah. consider that moderate and, and to the two grams value is probably a little bit closer. Um, that, and, and a lot of it with women, right. Cause they, first we got to get the calories set and for fat loss, it may be 10 to 12 calories per pound. Well, you got to get enough protein. You need to get some amount of dietary fat. I think what you'll find is that that's about where your carbs fall anyway. Yeah. Right. This kind of goes back to the previous question of in the modern era, people are emphasizing enough protein and moderate fat. Carbs have to be lowered. Right. There's there is no unless you are a 280 pound guy doing a ton of activity, you cannot have carbs much, much above two grams per kilo with modern dieting practices anyway. Yeah. And at that point, you're getting the benefits in terms of some of the hormonal stuff you start when women deplete the carbohydrate within their muscle, their body shifts to burning more fat, right? And as much as I hate this terminology, they become fat burning machines, <laughs> right? Yeah. But, but, that, but, but that's what happens. Typically women are doing low intensity cardio, which doesn't burn a lot of muscle glycogen, the carbohydrate in the muscle. They're eating a high carb diet. Their body just keeps burning carbs all day. And then as soon as you get them to start doing some weight training or some hit and moderate their carbs, it shifts their entire metabolism so that now they're using fatty acids more throughout the day. And that's when the magic happens. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. And a lot of, um, so a lot of our members come into the world and we do the macro approach and no one, not many of them have actually done macros before. They haven't even thought about their protein sure. or fat or carbs. They've been doing calorie only, or yes. they've been following, you know, some fat diets. Sure. Uh, calories, versus macros um how much of a benefit is it in your opinion to make sure because protein obviously makes you feel fuller keeps yeah. muscle you know, retains muscle mass would you recommend most people uh, you know do focus on the protein element with macros or some people just to stick to calories like is there a time where you tell somebody just do calorie based diets probably not like calories are always fundamental right the the, the emails that i always or the questions i just like is the i'm eating healthy slash clean slash this slash six meals a day. And I'm not, and I go, there's only one question that I have that you haven't answered. How many calories are you eating? Because mm. at the end of the day, calories are the, are, are the primary determinant. Now they aren't the sole determinant. People like to make lots of silly. What if you ate all your calories from jelly beans? Well, nobody's saying to eat candy for all of your, right? This, this is the dumb example that people like to make. It makes the point, but I have seen so many people and I dare say women more than men. And again, this isn't meant to be attacking. Some of it is bad information. Some of it is physiological, right? Men tend to show cravings for protein. Women tend to show preferences for carbs and fat. There is a biology to it. And a lot of women just don't have a taste for a lot of protein sometimes. So, and you'll see it in their diet. Well, for breakfast, I had, you know, some orange juice and an English muffin and then lunch and then lunch was pasta. And then they might have some chicken in salad at dinner. And you look at their diet and go, 
you're not even getting like the daily recommended amount, much less like what's optimal. And yeah. I just see that. And I see that too often. So, so if I were going to give someone like the simplest diet ever, I would give them a goal calorie and a goal protein intake and not worry about the rest of it. Like the, unless they go to the extremes where they're trying to eat, eliminate every gram of dietary fat, which I've seen, but if they only got those two things right, they would be ahead of the game and they wouldn't have to think about it too hard beyond that. Yeah. And um, is there certain thresholds for people? We always see with our clients, they'll eat more protein and then they're like, wow, I'm eating way more food than I thought I was able yeah. to. I'm losing weight. How is this possible? That is a frequent statement. Yeah. Um, what's going on there? Is it just that they're probably picking better foods, proteins higher, less, less hungry? Uh, yeah, I think it's like all those things and probably more protein is, you know, it's the most filling nutrients and that's people who are on high carb, low protein, low fat diets are just hungry all the time. Mm -hmm. I, I used to, I, I would make my, my clients think I was just a magician because they would come in and I'd be like, all right, tell me how you, what your day is eating as a breakfast would be a bagel, a cup of coffee or an English muffin. And I'd be like, I predict that you're at the candy machine by 1030 at work. I'm like, how did you know? And I'm like, because I am all knowing is easier. The quicker I made them think I knew everything, the, the less arguments we got into. And I'd be like, okay, tomorrow, just, I want you to find some source of protein to have at breakfast. I don't care what it is. Throw some ham, Canadian bacon, low fat cheese, have a Greek yogurt. I think Greek yogurt is something more women should eat. It's fantastic. It's high protein. It's got lots of calcium can blend anything into it. It's great. And it's not disgusting like cottage cheese. And yeah. I would do that and they would come back and go, oh my God, this is the first time I've been full through the morning. Tell me more. And I'd be like, all right, got them. So, <laughs> so yeah. So I think a lot of it's that it keeps blood sugar more stable. It keeps people full. Um, there may very well be an aspect of it simply uh, causing overall better food choice, you know, the buy-in or whatever it is. I think I, I, someone I knew a couple of years ago who had eaten traditionally low protein and started and they were just like, my God, this is like, I feel better all around. My brain feels better. Uh, and that has to do with, I think what we're going to finish with in terms of like neurochemistry and bipolar, she's got bipolar as well. And suddenly when she was on lower carbs, higher protein, everything felt better. She's like, this is a life hack. I'm not hungry. I'm losing fat. I look better. Like nothing. There's always just like nothing sufficient dietary protein can't do. And then you know, again, the issue is if you eat all the protein, it crowds out. Suddenly you can't eat enough carbs so, to sustain your training. You may, you know, it is possible to eat way too little dietary fat, but that's usually a guy thing. Guys are like, well, if three grams per kilo of protein is good, then six grams per kilo must be better. You're like, oh my God, how much protein are you eating in a day? And I'm like, 600 grams? Like, what else do you eat? Nothing. I'm like, okay, we need to find a happy medium. Yeah. I don't think most women fall into that trap, but most women tend to be on, on average or at the lower end. Men tend to be at the higher end and you probably need to bring them both a little bit more back to the middle. What, what would you say to veggies and vegans who are struggling with getting more protein because their foods are higher in fat and carbs, so it's not, they can't get that pure protein source in? Yeah, it's, that's a tough one. And because unfortunately, a majority of vegetarian and especially vegan protein sources have the tag along carbs and fats. 
Um, yeah. I know there, at least in the U.S., you know, there's been a big push for sort of, you know, vegan-based burgers and burger substitutes that I yeah. think are proportionally higher in protein. You're probably, like, I just can't, I can't think of any vegan protein sources, certainly, that are going to be high, maybe tofu, even that can be pretty high in fat, depending on how it's made. Vegetarians certainly have the options, depending on how strict their vegetarianism. I know that's, it's kind of a broad term, you know, chicken can be extremely low fat, almost pure protein, fish as well. Um, yogurt typically has some tag along carbs and fats depending, but it's not excessive. Um, I think frequently you find that you may just have to rely on protein powders or at least using protein powders to- Mixed with Greek yogurt's a good one. Yeah, or to bump up the protein content of, a, you know, like I don't like to see people living on supplements because again, it's not training long-term habits. It works great in the short term, but not in the long term. But you can use it to bump up the protein content of those whole foods that may not have enough. Yeah. Um, vegans, it's tough. You're going to have to find some of those vegan substitutes that that are that they're getting the protein in, intake higher. So okay. So in terms of protein recommendations per day. Yeah. Um, Vegans, veggies, unfortunately, you're probably better off having a, going towards the smaller end of your recommendation, which would be what? Yeah, just because I, well, so this depends a lot on body fat percentage. And this gets into a whole separate thing where in general, the more body fat you're carrying, the less protein you use for fuel, the less muscle you lose. Okay. And vice versa. As people get leaner, they tend to lose more muscle. Protein requirements go up. And it's kind of interesting. Women, when they diet, lose less muscle than men some of which is due to having an average higher body fat percentage. Some of it is they tend to burn more fat for fuel or it gets complicated. So for someone who's very lean, let me start at the extreme end. And when I say very lean, I'm talking low 20% body fat, looking to get into the teens, right? This is typically competitive athletes, uh, you know, physique competitors, maybe 10 to 12. We're talking, this is at the very extremes. Yeah. A woman might need to go, let me see if I do this math in my head as high as two and a half grams per kilo of lean body mass. Okay. I don't like to set protein to total body weight because your fat cells don't need any protein. Right. So that might be at the, the very extremes. Um, and that's simply. How, how would you measure lean body mass the most effective way? I mean, to get your body fat percentage, uh, machines are terrible, aren't they? The, the scale ones with these. Yeah. The, I don't, I don't like the electrical impedance scales. Calipers are more accurate than you think. Yeah. Honestly, at, at this point, there's, this, there's enough pictures online that kind of give a pretty good indicator. I would almost just go by visual indicators. Like a woman at 15% body fat will have a full six pack, generally speaking. At 22%, she'll be lean. She probably won't have full set of abdominals. She, unless she's got very unevenly distributed fat, she won't have particularly large amounts of fat on the hips and thighs. I mean, at 10%, a woman has zero body fat. That's just like that, that extreme shredded level. But those pictures are probably close enough. Um, so I would say two and a half grams per kilo. Yeah. Especially if she's weight training. By the time you get, so let's say that moderate range, say 25 to 35% body fat, yeah. which is, um, I would probably, you could bring that down to 2.2 grams per kilo, like that standard one, again, lean body mass per pound. Um, and then by the time you're above that, you could bring it down as low as probably 1.5 to maybe 1.8 grams per kilo, again, per pound of lean body mass. 
And, and, and it's, you know, when you do this math, right? So women tend to hear these numbers. You go, okay, I, you know, I want you to eat 130 pounds of, 100, 130 pounds, 130 grams of protein. Yeah. And they're like, oh my God, that's just an enormous amount of protein. But in a real world sense, it's not, right? Mm-hmm. So this much chicken or this much of any sort of animal meat, fish, chicken, red meat, it's four ounces in U.S. terms. I couldn't tell you how many grams that is um, without looking it up. But about that much, about a, about a deck of cards. Yeah. That will contain about 28 grams of protein, right? And that's a relatively, you know, have that four times a day and boom, you've met, you've easily met 120 grams of protein. Your average can of say tuna fish, same thing, about 30 grams of protein. Greek yogurt, about 13 grams per, per cup, at least in the U.S., um, it, it sounds overwhelmingly large, but yeah. I think when you actually look at real world food amount, more of it is just getting used to doing that, that frequently. And it, it can be a big dietary change for a lot of women. And then as you've mentioned, and some of your clients have said a couple of weeks in, they're just like, oh my God, I've never felt or looked better in my entire, like once they, once it can be a hard sell. I, I've had those clients that come in and you're like, okay, I need you to change everything you're doing because you've been misled by somebody else and they go but that'll never work and you go well but what you're doing right now isn't really working either it can be a hard sell kind of like going maybe maybe trying to go for as low calories as possible is not best and we should have you eat more what what do you mean eating more can work better just bear just just hear me out and it's a hard sell but within two or three weeks when it suddenly the magic starts to happen then they're like yeah, I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd met you two years ago. Um, so yeah, so and, and and so yeah, as you get again into heavier women who might be, you know, 90 kilos at 40% by the, the, the protein intake still don't really get that staggering. So we go 90 kilos, um, the uh, change sign 90 plus, you know, that's 54 kilos. Is that right? 54 kilos of lean body mass. You know, times it, it's that can't be right. Um, that <laughs> can't be right. There, lean body mass is just your total weight minus the percentage of body fat mass you have is your lean body mass. Uh, yes. Okay. Um, and and by the you know by the time you sort of once you get to a certain point of of higher of a higher body fat percentage, it, getting this specific about it probably starts to become a lot less important. You know, if, if women they're starting if they're getting 75 to 100 grams of protein per day which is again and and realize these are minimums i'm not saying this is all you can eat to your point frequently eating more protein than that it keeps them full longer it makes it easier to control calories there can still be benefits to eating a higher protein intake and honestly going back to your first question you know the whole keto diet thing a lot of the reason for a lot of people that had an advantage is because it's because you can find women online that are like, oh, yeah, until I went keto, nothing worked. And you go, well, let's look at what probably happened to your diet. Before keto, you're eating low protein, all carbs, low fat, insufficient electrolytes, not enough zinc, iron. You went to keto, your protein intake went up, carb intake went down, fat intake went up, started getting more sodium. The ketogenic diet or carnivore or uh, paleo it just tricked you into eating the way that I would have you eating without being on a specific diet. 
Yeah. And I think that's a lot of why. So yeah, so I think that's a lot of why that works. So yes, women can eat more than this if it helps with appetite or hunger or whatever, but they need to at least achieve those minimums. Yeah. Thanks, man. I mean, we 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 need we have to get you back on again. People are loving you. We got way more to go. Okay. But what I want you to talk about now is is the bipolar. Okay. Um, I, I, I'm going to be honest. I don't know much about it. I don't think many people do know about bipolar uh, disorder. So, um, so this is something, and I've written about this on my website, and it's something I'm happy to talk about. Like I realize mental illness can be a real taboo, depending. You know, there's a cultural aspect, and it's so. I, I look back and realize looking in hindsight is always very dangerous. Throughout college, my 20s and 30s. We all show those like energy, you know, mood changes throughout the year. Spring and summer, we tend to get a little bit more energized because of the sunlight. Well, not in the UK because there is no sunlight in the UK, <laughs> but you know kind of what I'm, and then in the winter, we get a little bit, you know, kind of laggy, right? So there's those natural, bipolar can be an extreme version of that, right? And I look back and I would do that. I fell into a big depression in my late 20s. It was actually after I finished my first book, which is, like I said, it nearly gave me a nervous breakdown. You would have been depressed too. Um, and then I remember coming out of it at one point. I think I got medicated with an antidepressant. And it's hard to describe. I was super productive. I was super excited about stuff. The world looked different. Everything was beautiful. And then I felt myself sinking back into this depression. And actually, that's when I got medicated. And some other things happened. And the short and the long, the long and the short of it is... Basically, in about 2012, I was 42 years old. Uh, I just moved back to Austin a couple of years before. I'd retired from sport, and I started to see these really severe mood changes. Now, bipolar, it, it also called bipolar depression, right? So, most I'm sure most people listening may know what depression entails, mm. and and there are very like depression is not a single thing, but typically it's you know a poor mood, you tend to sit around and think a lot, you're sad all the time, like there's a lot to depression. Unipolar depression means that you get depressed and then you come back to normal, whatever that means. Mm. And some people who are depressed just don't function well, can't get stuff done. Others can't get out of bed for 18 hours. Some people get suicidal, like there is an extreme and there's different types of depression. In bipolar, you alternate between depression and what's called mania. Now, mania can take many, many, many forms. Uh, people who are manic will think that they're gonna, that, that some scheme they've got is gonna work so well, they go buy three cars, they buy a plane because they know, they know that their new, their scheme, they're gonna make a million dollars, they're gonna win the lottery, they will throw their lives away. People may abuse alcohol and drugs, People will act out sexually and that be very sexually promiscuous and inappropriate. At the extremes of mania, you can start to have hallucinations. There are, can be crossovers with schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And bipolar in the most general sense is alternating between this low of depression and this high of mania. Now there's two major forms of bipolar. There's bipolar one, which is the most extreme version. And you will literally go from potentially uh, psychotic hallucinations to suicidal ideation where you want to kill yourself or you can't move, can't get out of bed for 18 hours. I was called bipolar two. Um, actually, let me go back. Probably the best way to describe being bipolar is like being on uh, a roller coaster. When you're manic, you're just going up and up. Everything's great. The world is great. I guarantee you, I once wrote a book in 24 hours. I guarantee you I was manic. 
everything was clicking. Your brain is working. You're so productive. Everything is great. And then almost overnight, you can't get out of bed for 18 hours. Hmm. When I was depressed, I would sit around. I was, I was like 28 years old at the depth of my, one of my depressions, watching television and thinking, wow, all these young, beautiful people on TV. And it doesn't matter because they're all going to get old and die someday. It's not fun. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. It is not a fun place to be where all you do, like I was lucky I've never been suicidal actively, but I would get to this place where I'd be like, I, I just want to go somewhere where nobody knows me and wait to die. Mm. You, it, I wasn't suicidal, but I didn't care if I lived or died. Yeah. I believed that despite all my success, despite my 14 books, that I was a fraud, that I was worthless, that I hadn't accomplished nothing. It's your brain lying to you. Anyway, so I have what's called bipolar two, where you alternate from depression, what's called hypomania. Now, hypomania is awesome. And anybody that's experienced it will tell you the same thing because <laughs> hypomania is a controlled form of mania. Whenever I'm on a new project, whenever I make a new discovery, I'm so productive. I get so, I wrote, I've written books in two or three weeks when I'm manic. Everything's clicking. The world is great. I told my therapist once, I would love to be hypomanic 24 seven. She said it'd be a short life. I'm like, yep, and it'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, like limitless. But it's, it's, it's the same thing on a more limited degree. And what essentially happened, I hit 2012, like I said, started to cycle because one of the insidious things with bipolar is every time you cycle from depressed to manic to depressed, it gets worse. It leaves traces in the brain and it progressively gets worse. And you hear horror stories. My mom, when she went to group, uh, when I was going through all this, woman who had been a tenured professor, totally successful, family, had a manic break in her 50s. Lost her job, lost her family, lost her house, living in her car. Overnight, that's, it's, and, and there are people that, it's been argued that some of the most creatives in our history were probably bipolar too, because mm. they made these discoveries when they were manic. And then yeah. they crashed into a relentless depression for months that you couldn't get out of. Yeah. So what happened with me, I hit this point, I made some really, really bad financial choices because basically I was like, this can't go wrong. What do you mean investing my entire life savings in this business isn't going to make me a millionaire? What can go wrong? Well, I'll tell you what can go wrong. <laughs> a whole lot can go wrong. And that's, and that's basically, I threw away my entire life savings in a span of about two and a half months before crashing into a severe depression. And was that 2012? Uh, no, this was in 2014. Okay, 2014. And I crashed, and that was kind of that's that's when I hit, and and it was in a way it was good, because in one of my relatives who was watching this happen told my mom, I hope he loses it all, because if I hadn't hit rock bottom, I don't think I would have sought treatment. Yeah. But once you hit that point where you have nothing left, I mean, I was lucky. I still had income from my books. I wasn't going to be homeless. I had a family. I had a support system. I went back to my hometown got into treatment. They put me on a mood stabilizer, a drug called Lamictal on there. Like they use many, many, many different drugs. Lithium is a common one. I'm glad I didn't have to go on to it because it's miserable. And the way my therapist described it, right? So here's, here's, bi here's bipolar one, depression, like hypermania. Yeah. Here's bipolar two, right? It still sucks. Mm -hmm. And the way my therapist described my medication, he says, I want to narrow the road. 
I want to bring it to here, right? Because let's face it, we all have good days. We all have bad days. We have good weeks. We have bad weeks. Yeah. The difference is a good day to a bad day has fallen off a curb and hypomania to depression is jumping off a three-story building because the difference between my life is perfect and wonderful and nothing could go wrong to I want to crawl into a hole and die and it happens overnight. Some people rapid cycle. Some people will cycle within a 24 to 48 hour span. Did something trigger it with you? Did you find things or not? I, it's hard to tell, you know, what, 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 what typically happens. I always find that I get into a new relationship because mine was very seasonal, actually. Mine always hit about March, April. So I jump into these relationships way too fast in March and April, be manic for three or four months, hit a depression, which doesn't do wonderful things for relationships, as you might imagine, being a miserable, you know, more a miserable, worthless, just self-pitying. It's just not a lot of fun. And then that would fall apart. And then I'd start to go And that. It was just, it was the right. And it was a cluster of events where I happened to start dating someone who happened to know someone that knew a business that was in trouble that I thought, I should buy from them because it seemed like a great idea at the time and there was nobody to stop me. So I got medicated and like I said, the, the, the meds are to, to, to narrow the road, right? You're never going to be great all the time. And, and I'll be honest, I miss being manic. Mm. Everyone, this is part of why people with bipolar don't tend to get, we want to get medicated for the depression. The depression sucks. The mania is awesome. And you do, you feel like you've lost something, but I've seen what's behind that door. I've seen what happens if I have a full-blown manic hypomanic episode. I know that it eventually has to end. And I know that the end is no fun. So I got medicated, crawled back out and realized, okay, I'm 45. And let's be honest, it's probably a little bit of a midlife crisis right? A, a bunch of things happened in 40. I pursued athletics from the time I was a competitive sport when I was 16 to the time I was 42. I retired. I had nothing going on. I was bored of the fitness field. I didn't know what to do with my life. So I started making some incredibly poor life choices. Got medicated, realized, okay, I'm broke now. I probably, what am I going to do at 45? Well, I guess I need to go back to the one thing that I'm good at. And the consequence being that three years later, I would write, you know, the women's book, written a couple little booklets since then. Like I said, big picture, it's the best thing that could have happened to me. Yeah. I wish it, I wish it hadn't. (laughs) My therapist calls it, you know, guilt, guilt, shame, regret. You Mm. sit there for weeks and go, how, how did I do this? Why did I think that buying this business was a good idea? How? Mm. And you struggle with uh, MVP, meaning, value, purpose. What do I do with my life? What do I, what, what am what am I supposed to do now? Yeah. It wasn't, and I still do. Like you still got like I still look back and go, God Almighty, was I stupid? But, and I'm not excusing it. I acted out. I acted very horribly to a lot of people. Um, I lost a lot of friends. Yeah. <clears throat> Some of them took me back, and many didn't. And as much as that sucks, it probably it makes me never want to go through it again. You know, yeah. there were a lot of times I did a lot on the internet. And actually, if you want to read something, uh, there is an article on my website called an open apology to the internet. It was the hardest piece I've ever written to say, yeah. you know what? I've been a real ass for a lot of years, not for any good reason, just to do it. Yeah. And while I'm never going to 
not take responsibility, right? I'm never going to say the bipolar, I'm not, I take full responsibility. It was important to me to basically just admit publicly, look, I screwed up. I will try to do better. Um, It was part of, you know, on top of reaching out to the people that I'd been, I mean, family, friends, I was awful. I didn't talk to my mom for a year. Mm. I was just really inhumanly awful to a lot of people because when you're manic, the other thing that happens, you will cut people out of your life for the slightest, just for, just for disagreeing with you, Mm. just for saying something that you don't like, they are the enemy and you will cut them out of your life forever. And I don't wish it on anybody. No, no, it's really good to hear you've come through and a lot of people are commenting saying that how inspiring you are, you know, many good things, you do many things. You're good, uh, and thanks for sharing the story. I try absolutely. A lot of people I, we speak to a lot of people who are mental health is one of is such a huge thing right now. Yes, I'm more open about it. Um, um, and it is, and I think you know, the, in, in the U.S., we have a lot of resources. We have we have meetings and stuff. And and one thing that I can tell people who may be listening to this, <clears throat> one of the insidious things about mental illness, for some reason, we always think that we're the only screw up in the world that we're the only person going through it. Mm. And the more people who talk about it, the more we realize this is what it is. People are dealing with this a lot. Um, I was lucky to have not only a family support, support meetings. uh, We have the Depression and Bipolar Support Association along with NAMI, the National Association of Mental Illness that have meetings and you go and you talk to other people just to see that you're not the only one suffering. Yeah. On top of getting great resources. Yeah. On top of, I went for the longest time because I always have to be careful. I can always ramp up. It can always happen again. And that's the really insidious thing. When you start to go manic, you think, you don't think anything's wrong. Depression is easy in the sense of, wow, this sucks. When you Mm. start to become manic, your brain goes, no, 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 you're perfect. Mm. All of them are wrong. And you don't want to tell anybody about it. Once it gets beyond a certain point, you won't listen. And if anybody is going to be able to tell if you're going manic again, it's someone who's been, (laughs) it's someone who's bipolar. So I went to meetings for months because if I was going to go through it again, if anybody was going to see it, it was going to be them. So if you're dealing with this, and can find a support group to go talk, do it. Yeah, amazing. Well, Lyle, you've been inspiring. You've been, <coughs> you know, all this amazing information you've helped. Thank you. <coughs> We'd love to get you back on another chat. And talk. Absolutely, yes. But what, where can people, so people have asked about where your books are. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have <coughs> books. Is there one in particular they should buy that's maybe not too deep for them to understand? on your store and what probably honestly of all the books i've written that i wish i need to retitle it and i wish more people had read i would probably say my guide to flexible dieting would be the best place to start it's not a specific diet it deals with a lot of what we talked about today it does go through basic diet setup but it talks about sort of long-term adherence how trying to be too strict and beat yourself up when you fail your diet or whatever how to implement some of these things we talked about like days at maintenance diet breaks for that, that aspect of it is probably one of the best places to start. You know, if you really want all the details on women's stuff, the women's book, it is not an easy book. I will be honest. It's, it's, it is fairly technical. It's very dense. I probably wouldn't recommend starting with that. 
Um, if you do want to know a lot about birth control, especially as it pertains to performance and some of the stuff we talked about, I did write a little booklet called Birth Control and Athletic Performance. I kept it much more streamlined. It's yeah. very much, it's like 50 pages. I didn't get into all the details that weren't important. So that would, if, if you're interested in the topic of birth control and how it affects things, that would also be, but flexible dieting. Where to find me? My website is bodyrecomposition.com. I've got 500 plus articles. My store is store.bodyrecomposition.com. Best place to find me is on Facebook. I've got a Facebook group that's very active, again, called Body Recomposition. I always like to point out that, I mean, I'm on there daily. I tend to attract experts in their own field. Yeah. We have a number of top-notch physios, a couple OBGYNs, some physicians. Uh, I've got a guy named Trevor Bunch who does a lot with, uh, he's a double lower body amputee. He does a lot with adapted exercise. If you have a question, if you have a condition, if you have anything, if I don't have the answer, someone in my group is either an expert on it or has experienced it. And I learn daily from my group. I do have an Instagram, McDonald Lyle, that I mainly tell dumb jokes. And I, so yeah, my Facebook group is by, by far and away. I'll get uh, the best place it. to find me. Yeah. I'll get the links and post it. But everyone, thanks for watching. Um, thanks for having me. Back soon. But Lyle, wait to bear for me once I go. Yes, sir.